Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. Every week, it is my honor to bring you higher education thought leaders, topics of note, current trends, and new information to ponder. Shows are replayed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Pods. Subscribe, rate, and share on your favorite podcast app. And if you are here in the Fireside app, be sure to follow me for all updates and new shows. Today's show, in 1971, the 26th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, lowering the national voting age to 18. The amendment stated that the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. However... Young people just don't vote has been a cry heard for far too long. But is it accurate? And if so, are voter registration laws, gerrymandering, and other actions at the state level working against mobilizing young voters to go to the polls? Today, we are joined by experts from leading civic engagement and voting organizations, All In, Campus Democracy Challenge, and Campus Voter Project will join us to discuss this timely topic. But first, some news that we're watching. Out of higher ed dive, University of Idaho warning employees who discuss abortion could face prosecution under state law. The University of Idaho warned employees on Friday that they must remain neutral when discussing abortion in the classroom or risk prosecution under a state law, including a felony conviction or loss of employment. The guidance from the public institution's lawyers emailed employees on Fridays angered some faculty and civic liberties uh, supporters who, while stirring debate about whether the university has appropriately defended academic freedom. We've done two shows on this topic, and if you are looking for replays on that, please go into uh, the Fireside app. You can find me there, and you can see all my replays. We will be continuing this conversation as this issue continues to take shape on our campuses. Uh, Our second story out of uh, Inside Higher Ed, Penn State seeks major appropriations boost. The university is seeking $115 million more in state appropriations, arguing that it's comparatively underfunded in the state. State supporters for higher education has been on the decline in Pennsylvania for years, but Pennsylvania State University leaders are now asking lawmakers to reverse course and significantly invest in higher education in next year's state budget. The Penn State Board of Trustees approved a request on Friday that will ask the state to increase appropriations, as discussed previously, to $115 million, which is a 48% increase. While the 47.8% increase may seem like a striking number, 
Penn State officials say an internal analysis shows that PSU had long been underfunded compared to other state universities. Officials stay, say the state increase is needed to reach the funding level of the next lowest funded university. And finally, uh, the Vermont system plans tuition reset for three of their merging colleges. This comes to us from Higher Ed Dive. When Castleton University, Northern Vermont University, and Vermont Technical College finish consolidating in the new Vermont State University next year, posted tuition prices will fall under a strategy known as tuition reset. We have seen this come up at two other colleges and universities in the last few months, um, and we will be discussing this next week on the show on our Think Tank episode. The new Unified University's base tuition will be just $9,999 per year for undergraduates when institutions launch in July. That's a decrease of about 15% from the average sticker price at the three combining institutions, which is $11,808. Uh, so we'll be talking more about this, and uh, we're looking forward to that conversation next week at 12 noon on Tuesday. Um, we are joined today by Stephanie King and Mike Burns. And before we get started, I want to encourage people that if you are here listening, you can actually go and you can go to the hamburger in the lower left-hand corner of your uh, uh, of your device, um, and you can hit share and broadcast to the world. And so when you hit broadcast to the world, uh, you can then take that and you can uh, put it up into any of your social media feeds, and we encourage you to do so. So Stephanie King joins us here from Civic Nation. Stephanie is the Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives for All In Campus Democracy Challenge. She previously held roles of uh, Director for Civic Engagement and Knowledge Community Initiatives at NASPA, where she directed the NASPA Lead Initiative and co-managed, co-created the Voter Friendly Campus Program. Uh, Stephanie has worked in higher education since 2009 in the areas of student activities, orientation, residence life, and civic learning and democratic engagement. She earned her master's in psychology at Chatham University and her bachelor's degree in biology from Walsh University. She's continued to uh, contributed to a few publications, including effective strategies for supporting stu student civic engagement and higher education's role in enacting a thriving democracy, civic learning, and democratic engagement theory of change. Uh, Stephanie also serves as an election clerk in the town of Dedham, Massachusetts, which had its big uh, cow uh, pooping thing that happened this weekend. And we can talk about that. It, did you attend the cow pooping thing? So for folks that are not from Dedham, Massachusetts, it is our Dedham Day program. So it's a celebration of the town wherein you can buy a plot on the town field to decide where a cow may do its business. And if a cow does its business in said plot on the field, then you receive funds as like a fundraiser to go back to help support um, the school systems, community programs, and so forth. So yes, cow pooping is a hot topic in Dedham this past week, and folks will continue to talk about it as they relish in their winnings and the contributions to fundraisers. But yes. Did you win? anything we did not we did not win anything but the joy of a, a tiny two-year-old who loves seeing cows in real life so okay that's excellent well i i appreciate uh any kind of creative fundraising okay so that's fun okay and now we are here with mike burns uh he's from campus voter project mike is the national director for fair elections uh 
at the center's Campus Voter Project. Uh, he spent five years working in electoral politics prior to law school, including two years as the executive director of the Fairfax County Democratic Committee. Uh, during law school, Mike was enrolled in CUA's Law and Public Policy Certificate Program and was rewarded, oh, sorry, awarded a Doolin Haynes Fellowship upon completion. Uh, Mike has spent the last nine years working with various kinds of institutions of higher education from across the country to help them understand the effects of different election administrative systems have on their campus community and how they can help their students register and vote. He has a JD from the Catholic University of America and a bachelor's degree in political science with a minor in history from Longwood University. And he is a member of the Virginia Bar. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. Really excited. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you both here. So um, I want to talk to you both about uh, your journeys into the work that you're doing. Um, and But in the f interest of full disclosure, I do have another uh, show on Fireside where I talk about uh, politics. It's called The Kitchen Table. And um, that was in season one of my work here on Fireside. And so people who have listened to that show know my political uh, background. Um, but for those who, who don't, um, I was uh, a grassroots organizer for several com uh, campaigns. And then uh, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, but during the height of the pandemic, when things were looking really bleak as far as higher ed was concerned, especially if you're consulting in higher education, um, I got hired by the John Ossoff campaign as an organizer. And so I always joke with people that I was probably the oldest organizer in the history of political organizing and my team, I, I would be on Zoom calls with my team and I would like make a comment like I could have birthed all of you because these are all people who like literally just came out of college and went into this role. And so, uh, but I have always been appreciative of the work, uh, especially voter friendly project. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And this is such an important time of our of the year, um, being that the midterms are coming up. And so um, I'd like the listeners to understand a little bit more about the mission of Campus Vote Voter Project and All In. And so let's start with Mike. Tell us a little bit more about the Campus Voter Project and the mission of that organization. Yeah, so um, Campus Vote Project is part of the Fair Election Center. And the Fair Election Center is a national nonpartisan voting rights advocacy organization. Uh, we're based in D.C. and we have an amazing legal team there that does everything from federal and state like legislative and regulatory policy bills and submitting testimony um, to producing the 50 state registration and voting guides um, materials other research projects that we do, um, everything up to actually litigating voting rights cases. Um, and then the Fair Election Center started the Campus Vote Project 10 years ago, because um, I think we saw, especially within the voting rights community, um, you know, we kept referring to young people and especially students as kind of, uh, you know, one of these classes of groups that was underrepresented in our democracy and that we needed to be trying to advocate for them. But nobody was like holding a seat at the table for them, especially day in and day out and wanted to try and figure out how to close that gap. And so through that work, have kind of been trying to figure out coming from the voting rights side and with this legal team, how do we actually help support higher education and these kind of constant um, you know, cohorts of students coming through to actually be able to, to facilitate that for them. So, you know, when I started with CVP about almost nine years ago now, I was the only staff person <laughs> working on the, the project within Fair Election Center. Um, and now this year we'll have almost 30 full-time staff across the country and about 300 students who are participating in like our democracy fellowship program. 
Um, so a lot of a lot of growth in that time trying to figure out how to meet this need. But you know, kind of today, what the Campus Hope Project does is work with universities, community colleges, faculty, students, and election officials to really try and reduce barriers to student voting. And our goal is to try and help campuses actually like institutionalize those reforms so that mm-hmm. students are getting empowered with the information they need to register and vote. Fantastic. Um, and uh, Stephanie, why don't you tell us more about All In? Of course. Thanks so much, Laura, again, for the opportunity to be a part of today's conversation. So the All In Campus Democracy Challenge is an initiative of Civic Nation, a 501c3 initiative. And our aim is to help campuses institutionalize what we define as nonpartisan democratic engagement, being civic learning, political participation, and student voter engagement. The ways in which we work with campuses is to really help them embed structure, support, and recognition into their nonpartisan efforts to make this a more year-round robust structure as part of the campus experience, instead of it being let's prepare for the midterm and then kind of sunset our work until the next general election happens in two years. And with a general understanding that elections are happening all the time. And so young people, the more they have awareness about the community impact of elections, the greater their impact is. And that can be measured, you know, through our partners like Circle that look at the Youth Electoral Significant Index to determine, you know, governor races, state races, et cetera, that the student vote is very powerful. And to Mike's point, when our initiatives were stood up in 2016 as the voter-friendly campus program alongside Campus Vote Project and NASPA and then all in, that there was no formational body, I don't want to say regulatory body, but there was no way for campuses to really feed into what does it mean to make a good faith effort with HEA and how do we support them with structures that help them to measure, help them to think about impact, and then to think about longevity of their programs. Um, And to put faces with names of, do you know that there's this really great organization known as the Fair Election Center and Campus Vote Project at the time of having been a former or you could say recovering student affairs practitioner, like it just wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't on my radar. It was, you know, one more phone call in the inbox of a vendor long list of like, I need a a bounce house for Tuesday. Oh, and can you do voting information? And it's like, well, like how do you balance that? So that's a little bit of how All In came about alongside um, voter-friendly campus work. And then also the greater work that CDP has been doing long before um, All In was an entity in higher education. And I think it's it's commendable and clearly your two organizations complement each other in terms of your mission, in terms of what you're trying to do. Um, I've been in the field long enough that I remember literally the first time uh, anyone was talking about it was Rock the Vote. Um, and this was back in probably, two, probably 1997 or 1998. And we got... Uh, packets of information from Rock the Vote to to encourage students to register to vote on campus. I was working um, at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and we were getting folks registered to vote. And the League of Women Voters came on campus to help. And um, that was this generational mashup that was quite interesting. Uh, And, you know, when you actually kind of took the two organizations, the, the League of Women Voters, who tend to be people of a certain age um, and uh, tend to be a little on the older side. Um, and they walked into the student center looking at things like like they were on Mars or something, right? And then you had the students wanting to do Rock the Vote because it was this big high profile thing on MTV at the time. Um, it, it was really interesting. And I think I, I remember very fondly the women leaving, feeling good that folks were voting until they started thinking about these students voting on local elections, which we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) It was almost like 
this is great for you to be voting in these national elections. But wait a second, should you be voting like on something that really affects my backyard? Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that later in terms of your point, Stephanie, about making sure that voting and registering to vote and and participation is a sustainable thing. As with anything that we're encouraging on our campuses in terms of civic engagement, we don't want it to be a one and done. We want it to be something sustainable. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, Mike, uh, CVP, we're talking about your staff and how it's expanded over time. Um, according to your website, you're, you're in 10 states. Can you talk to us more about these staff roles? What is their function? Um, how do they help advance the mission and the goals? Um, but also, uh, you know, are there specific reasons for these states that were selected? Um, talk to us more about that. Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think this the state coordinators are key members of our team and, and really the heart of the work that we do. So we have state coordinators in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Arizona. I have to do it geographically so I can remember everybody now that we're up to 10. Um, you know, and we also, we actually added a, an HBCU coordinator who works specifically with historically black colleges and universities. So, um, we're doing some of that work within those states already. Um, and then that person works specifically with HBCUs in Louisiana, Alabama, and Maryland. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, part of what Stephanie was saying too, is, you know, these folks are in the states that they're, they're working in kind of familiar with the landscape there. And what we're trying to do is, you know, every semester, every year, whether there's a federal election or not, build these relationships with administrators and faculty members at the campuses, um, knowing that we need to kind of build these foundations so that as students matriculate through, there's a place for them to kind of take leadership and ownership of this work without having to do all of it themselves. So for us, that means being consistent in the places where we are, trying to identify these folks that Stephanie mentioned who are passionate about this work and that's expanded and grown um, in the time that I've been doing this work and make sure that we're kind of connecting them. You know, when we first got started at this, there just wasn't, you know, folks who get into this and then have a passion for it. Like not all of them are election law experts. And in just the last couple of years, the election law landscape has just changed radically every year from the emergency procedures that were put in place to the pandemic to kind of some of the ongoing kind of spread of voter suppression we've seen since the 2013 Shelby County case really undermined the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we've really seen the country go in opposite directions where there's a handful of, you know, half the states are trying to make it easier and innovate and meet voters where they're at, and the other half are going exactly back in the wrong direction. And it's changed so much more just in the last couple of years than in the entire rest of the time I've been doing this. So really helping folks stay up to date on what the law is, how that happens, but then doing the long-term work to think ahead to be like, if we want someone to talk about voter registration and orientation, we can't just show up to orientation and have someone be like, hey, I'm interested in that. Like that is a conversation that needs to happen over time. So like trying to get the programmatic work built in and coalitions built that reach kind of all aspects of a campus so that it doesn't stay siloed in the poli-sci department or just even in student affairs. Um, so really kind of working with folks to build that up campus by campus and, and create these state-based networks um, to do that kind of work. So um, this can go to you as well as to Stephanie. When you're working with campuses and you're trying to build these relationships, um, you don't want to just look like you just got dropped out of the the sky like a hovercraft or something. They want you want to have some build some trust. Um, what what are the kind of approaches you take? Um, do you do you go to the campuses? Do they come to you? Is it kind of a little bit of both? Uh, this is open to both of you. 
Yeah, I will say when we first got started, it was a lot of kind of pounding the pavement and showing up on campus so that folks knew that we were real, real and we weren't just another one of these like vendors who was calling to sell something. Like, you know, we are here to try and help campuses be successful, but also like, you know, we can't do all of this work on every campus. We just don't have access to those kind of resources as a nonprofit org. So it really needs to be a partnership. Um, and that's one of the reasons we've, you know, when we first got started, we didn't have the kind of longevity we have now. And now we've kind of understood the model better and tried to move to this where like when we hire a state coordinator, we intend to be in that state and make an investment every year to keep showing up to do this work. Um, you know, we've started putting on kind of what we call like student voting summits in each state every year to try and help facilitate these networks of campuses and students kind of across each state. Um, to also bring those, one, to bring some of those validators together, to bring some of the campuses that have been doing this longer and maybe have some of those great ideas and connect them to some of the newer folks, especially some of the churn we've seen in staff lately too, really trying to make sure that that institution, like <laughs> we work with administrators and faculty to make sure that there's institutional knowledge about what's happening to support student leadership in this work. But then when we lose the administrators, we need to make sure that someone else is picking that up. So trying to like, even just across the state, put those networks together has been really important and trying to make sure that, um, folks see our seriousness, that we're bringing them together, that we plan to continue to do this work um, and that we're not just show, dropping in and showing up on campus, you know, 60 days out from an election and trying to do a bunch of activity ourselves, but that we really want to make sure that that is part of a coordinated effort and that students are, you know, gaining the knowledge and skills they need to be able to like evaluate candidates in the election process, even though we're focused more on the logistical issues of being able to register and vote um, as a voting rights organization. Stephanie, let me kick that over to you because what Mike's putting out there, it's clearly about relationship building. A lot of uh, political organizing is relational. It is all about talking to people and making sure that people are engaged in the process. Uh, talk to us a bit about uh, about your organization and, and how you're connecting with campuses to meet your goals. Yeah. When we were originally set up in 2016, one of the most strategic things we did was work with the Higher Education Civic Action Network to be on All In's advisory board as a by proxy to Civic Nation as we were coming about. So really thinking about folks that are in the higher education space, also connected to civic engagement that are well-intended and trusted. So at the time of, like our original founding board was Kevin Kruger of NASPA, Karen McTime Musil of AACNU, Ashley Finley. Um, we also had you know, Imagining America representatives, Nancy Thomas with IDHE. We had Mickey Meyer from Rollins College as a VPSA. Like it was very intentional about who we invited to the conversation to build the foundation of our program to then say, how do we do outreach to campuses in a meaningful way? Also at the time of when All In was started in 2016, as I mentioned moments ago, it was also the same time that you know, CVP and NASPA were forming their relationship to do the voter-friendly campus program, building off of the efforts of a crispal moment in 2012, which put student affairs practitioners in a space of like, you need to do something. Like there's an issue about this call to action comparing the difference between volunteerism and civic participation. And so with all of that historical knowledge, that's how we built our foundation of campuses, really getting involved with All In to say, we know we need to do something. We know structure is necessary, but we also need kind of that carrot. Um, at the same time, there was the Corporation for National Community Service used to have its President's Commitment Program. So you could be a bronze, silver, platinum campus in regards to service at large. And then they eventually evolved that into interfaith engagement as well as service learning. And then it just kind of died. So there was like a hole in the higher education space that folks were looking for recognition in a more predominant way. And it just happened to be why advantageous. Why that happened though? Let's talk about why we think that happened. My thought about why the president's commitment program from CNCS went away um, is surface level and that they probably just didn't have time and capacity to measure it. 
And also the campuses that we're engaging as more and more campuses were participating, that means you need more and more evaluation about the work that's happening. And as we know from folks as the community engagement practitioner field or professional field has also grown in the last five years with work coming out of like Lena Distilio and, you know, Barbara Jacoby and Tim Eatman and, you know, Becca Berkey and others, like there was this dovetail in how the field was recognizing itself. And that's like community engagement would be one part in my mind of like civic learning and democratic participation, but also everyone else could probably argue that maybe it's different, that CLDE falls within community engagement. Like, right, so we have to right, figure that right. out in the future. But a lot of things were happening, and I don't think campuses were getting the same support from CNCS. And then also transitions in administration between um, where we were in 2016, where we were in 2020. Lots have happened um, yeah. between different types of political parties being involved, the investment in from the Department of Education to support higher education in regards to civics. And then a plethora of coalition partners from the Students Learn, Students Vote Coalition, like Campus Vote Project, All In, et cetera, also standing up in the last five years. So a lot has happened, um, I think, changing the landscape. And I'm sure Mike definitely has insights about what support mechanisms are helpful to campuses. Um, and then I can also say for our reach today, we now work with 940 campuses across the nation in D.C. Um, all of them have differing levels of engagement. We've onboarded about 150 this past year. And so their engagement, of course, is a more surface level than campuses that have been with us since the inception. Um, and the ways in which we work with those partners varies, right? So we offer communities of practice. We offer our president's commitment to work with senior leaders. We offer um, demographic-based spaces. So for HBCUs and HSIs and community colleges. And then we also have one-stop shops for things like our coaches that are working to help support um, the NCAA legislation for D1 and D2 schools. Right, right. And then we have our allintovote.org platform to help the functionality of the voting process. Um, but definitely, Mike, want to welcome your con contributions about the curb of the CNCS project and, and how that helped to feed a space for voter-friendly campus to stand up. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me too, because um, even just across like the, the arc of organizing, I think lots of times we lose the fact that like young people are frequently at the forefront of like social justice movements and civic engagement movements. But then as they gain steam and move on, like, you know, it was SNCC and those those youth organizers at the front of the civil rights movement. But we remember John Lewis as he was at the end of his life. And we don't always reflect on the fact that, you know, he was a teenager in college when he started doing that work. Really and I don't lot. think we always do the best job telling that to, to current students to center them in that way around that or the anti-war movement and how that helps spur and get us the 26th Amendment. Um, so one of the things we try and do in our work, working directly with students now around being voter advocates is like, is kind of push back on that you have to wait narrative that they potentially might hear from other folks. It's like, you know, if older, we tell them older generations are voting at higher rates from you. And that's why politicians are showing up to senior facilities and to bingo halls, and they're not on campus all the time. You know, there's like a cycle here that needs to be broken on that front a bit too. And then I think to what Stephanie was saying, I think for us is we've seen in trying to do some of that work in that longer arc is that specifically within higher education, we've been working over this time to show folks that there's a there's a need for a nonpartisan space for it. And I think as politics has gotten more and more polarized, I think more people have opened their eyes to that. So when we used to show up and be like, the Higher Education Act has a requirement that you have to provide voter registration forms to every student physically in attendance and make them widely available. As Stephanie was saying, like people didn't even know that that was in there, much less were complying with it or understood right. how to comply with it or what the best ways to help students register to vote were. So really trying to, and we would literally hear from folks who wanted to do the work that they're, uh, you know, someone higher up would be saying that's too partisan. 
Like the institution can't do voter registration. We need to leave that for the students. And I think our argument has been like, you need to like build the platform for students to stand on. And there should be a nonpartisan home for this work within the civic mission of higher education to really facilitate all of this and institutionalize it and put staff and resources behind it. So, it is, so that the partisan student groups, the nonpartisan student groups, the issue focused folks, like they can do what they have the energy to do and they can be involved in those present day debates. But like as a minimum, we're setting everyone up for success for being able to participate in our democracy. Yeah, I think, and if I might add on to that, Mike, it's also the space of at 18, it's the time when you're most discovering who you are as a human, right? right. What issues do I care about? How do I want to participate in community? What does it mean to be away from home if I'm, you know, across state lines or living on campus or with different persons of value, they're bringing together different ideas, different processes, et cetera. Like that's the peak moment to decide how do you participate and show up? And if colleges aren't thinking about that within the you know, social wellness wheel of constructs of where do we see ourselves in community development, then we're missing the mark. And it doesn't have to be partisan, right? Like, I don't think I, in my day-to-day experience, talk about Republicans and Democrats, elephants and donkeys. That's not the work that we're a part of. And being able to demystify that for higher education has been probably the biggest contribution organizations like Voter Friendly Campus and All In can provide to say, there's a right and responsibility and a space to be not necessarily agnostic, but in between and just talking about skill and mechanism and then allowing you as the person to make that decision, whether you stand on an issue or do not. So I think taking away the like, it's too partisan, we can't touch this. Like cold calling in 2016 was hard work to institutions. Yeah, I bet. It's an email, right? Like you can go to the voter-friendly campus reports every year end. You can go to the all-in impact report. You can go to these resources that show nonpartisan engagement makes a difference mm. in registration and turnout rates. And we didn't have that data when we started. And we now have those narratives to lean on to help better support campuses in doing the work. And then also I affectionately call people the doers all the time. So hopefully they don't mind, but it like gives them an argument to upper administration of like, I need staffing. Like I need dollars. I need to be able to afford pizza to have a conversation across difference. And those budget lines didn't exist. Right. Right. And now being able to do that analysis, I think has been the greatest contribution in us working with campuses. It was like you were in my class last night. I was teaching last night, my student affairs, uh, my student affairs administration class. And we were talking about assessment versus uh, evaluation. And I said, sometimes, you know, there's two sides of the world. They're not the same thing. And I said, sometimes you have to do your mean counter stuff where your data is showing you certain things. And that actually helps your budget. Whereas your learning outcomes actually show what you're actually doing. What's the value, right? And so, um, you know, you were talking about that as far as the nonpartisan piece, why it's so important is you're developing the whole student, um, having them engage with their community and that engagement includes voting is super important. Um, And as student affairs professionals and as higher education professionals and faculty, Um, Sometimes we have to kind of have conversations that are difficult conversations to have. Um, We were having a similar conversation in my class last night after class. Uh, Several of my students were talking about where they wanted to go uh, after graduation and where they wanted to work. And women saying, I just don't know if I want to go to a place like Idaho or a place where I don't have reproductive freedom. And what happens in my life in terms of my ability to do my job? Um, and you know, you have to have these conversations with yourself as far as what can you do to help impact your students in the most, uh, shall we say objective way? Well, not 
hiding who you are, you know, and I think that that's always a challenge. Um, and, you know, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, something about, uh, you know, I, I did some canvassing up in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is, is kind of a wackadoo state in terms of what you're allowed to do as a college student and and registering and um, Mike, you're the expert. So if I'm getting this wrong, jump on me and just say, no, no, you're wrong. Um, but you can register to vote in New Hampshire as a college student, but you have to actually go and get a, a, a license or something for Massachusetts for, um, sorry, for New Hampshire that shows that this is your space. You can't have like a license from Massachusetts and still be registered to vote in New Hampshire. Am I right on that? Uh, it's a, it's a very squishy area. I mean, yeah. I think for most students generally, if they move for college, they have to make a decision because a big part of this, it's both like, there's two prongs of it in every state and it's worded a little bit differently, but it's usually something like your physical presence and your nexus to the place, as long mm -hmm. as your mental intent as well to like view yourself as a resident there and plan to return after any temporary absences. So we have like one case that's pretty old and not very detailed out of the Supreme Court that actually came out of Prairie View A&M in Texas trying to fight this when they were having a hard time with the local election officials there trying to stop students from being able to register to vote. It basically says like that that's discrimination, like using student status as a proxy almost for age and then discriminating against those folks was a violation of the 26th Amendment. But then it still really is kind of individual to students to think about like, is this where I consider home? Do I want to register and vote at my campus address? Or if I moved for school, do I want to maintain a registration or be registered back at my prior address and then only be registered and vote in one place once you make that determination? Right. And that's where, you know, one of the things I say to, to um, parents when they're talking about, you know, I want my kid to vote uh, in their first election. They're going off to school. They're a first year traditional age, first year student. This is going to be their first opportunity to vote. And there's uh, and there's a lot of things to consider and that one of them is, you know, what matters more? Where do you want to vote in terms of what matters to you and your values and what is is your your, uh, you know, as I hear some parents say, well, it will count more in this state. And I'm like, look, I'm not here to tell you what counts more. But um, but the other thing they have to do is they have to know about uh, timelines and making sure that they're registering to vote on time. And in some states, you have to show physical proof of address in order to register to vote. And uh, and have you heard about things where that gets a little nuanced about uh, residence halls versus an off-campus apartment, what counts? Or uh, are there any issues like that going on, Mike? Yeah, it really gets into the weeds because I, I think the, the key weeds. thing is, yeah, the key thing is like, to be able to register to vote, your local election office needs to be able to basically like put you on the map. So they need to know where you're physically located. So a lot of times what we've seen is like campuses that maybe don't have physical addresses associated with buildings on campus having to work with their local election office yeah. for them to even know in the election office what precinct those buildings are in. So if the student labels the building, then they know where to put them or literally getting addresses assigned, even though they're like not real addresses that you would otherwise use so that those students can get placed in the right place when they submit their registration forms. And then making sure they get mail too, knowing that the mail system on campus can be different. So you've got your registration address that you have to get right. So the election office knows where to put you, but then you also have to get your mailing address right. So if they're mailing you your you know things to you, that you're actually getting those notices, that you're getting the information 
information you need from them because also having that mailing bounce back is a signal to them that maybe you're not there anymore right. and could potentially lead you to being marked as inactive or having your registration eventually canceled. So it's definitely can be very tricky for students to make sure. And then knowing that they're highly mobile and they move almost every year, that every year almost they were getting folks updated and they're having their registration updated to the correct address. It's, is, it's a huge barrier. And what you're talking about, Mike, is why the efforts, both of your organizations are so important because it it is complicated and it becomes more and more complicated as you alluded to earlier. There are some states that are actively doing whatever they can to suppress the vote um, and make things more complicated and confusing. And that's, and you know, I, I've heard from people who've been voting for 20, 30 years and their state has changed the rules and they're like, I just don't even know what to do anymore, you know? And so when you, when you're calling people and making sure that they're, they're keyed into their voting, um, you know, you're both involved in the, uh, the voter friendly campus program. Um, and can you give us some examples as you're thinking and you could, you know, you can choose to, or choose not to call out some schools that might be exemplars in this to say, you know, these are some things that campuses are doing to be sustainable in this. Um, you said this earlier, Stephanie, that we don't want this to just be a every four year thing or every two year thing. Vote, voting happens every year, sometimes multiple times a year, depending on what's going on in your state or locality. Um, what are some really innovative things that that have, you know, kind of called to your attention and go, this is actually a good practice that regardless of the type of institution you're at uh, is something you should be thinking of? I think one of the things that I would definitely highlight, and Mike and I have the privilege of being a part of the steering committee, is the Ask Every Student program, which is led by Campus Vote Project, All In, the Students Learn Students Vote Coalition, and NASPA. And that program is literally geared at asking every eligible student to register to vote through programs and pathways that are already existent at the college campus. So for instance, embedding voter registration into things like parking pass pickup, or residence hall assignments, or class advising. So something that every student has to go through, can you add the five minute kind of caveat related to voter registration? Some campuses that I think have been most successful with those efforts, um, to name a few, and then I know BFC has a few others as well, is for instance, the University of Oklahoma, the Norman campus, they embed voter registration into their learning management system. They have a course that dictates kind of information for all residents of the state of Oklahoma, knowing college students have that choice. Then they also feed out to resources like Allins, allintovote.org platform, Campus Vote Project, state guides. So if they have students from out of state that are looking to vote, it's it's already a part of that pathway. There's folks at Iowa State University that have gone the length to find every campus public transportation and putting election day advertisements up that are every student has to ride public transit at some point in time for their campus, the way it's kind of positioned geographically. Like, you know, they're going to see that reminder. Mm-hmm. We have other folks like Northwestern University that do a heavy lift of person-to-person interactions where every student gets like a five-minute conversation of, Laura, you get to register to vote. What state do you want to register to vote in? Here's the regulations you need to follow and the important dates for this election season, whether you choose to vote in Illinois or you're choosing to vote in Massachusetts. And they make sure their students are trained enough to know what are the regulations by state at that current moment in time. As Mike mentioned early on, there's lots of states doing lots of, I'll use the word fun in a sarcastic tone, fun things related to voter regulations that make it complicated, but trying to equip those student fellows in the best possible capacities to support their peers. So you see a lot of that. You also see folks like Stanford working with their engaged student athlete program. Like there's campuses that are willing to lean into innovation um, and then also finding pathways that make it less of a burden to the campus, but more of a like, 
aha moment. Um, and I think orientation at one point in time was like, God, we had orientation. Like that's the one place every student is. But having brand orientations at different points in my life, like it's also the point where you're talking about FERPA compliance and Title IX, and you have parents around, and you have family integration, and you have finding your class buildings. And then I add in voter registration, and it feels like a plus and, and not a meaningful experience. And that's one of the problems with any of those kind of magic pill programs that we have on campus. Orientation is probably the number one uh, example. People say, let's just keep adding it. Let's keep adding it. And the more you keep adding it, you're just diluting it. And nothing is actually having an impact. And so your point about being intentional is super, super important. Um, and I think also, especially when it comes to something like this, where it's really one of the first independent decisions that a student's going to make. Um, separating it from when their parents are standing there hovering behind them um, actually is is meaningful, okay? And it actually allows for that, you know? Um, there was a unrelated but related. Um, I'm old enough to remember there was a point along the time, and Mike and Stephanie, you may remember this from a student standpoint when you were in college, but we used to give out things called good stuff boxes when students moved into the residence halls. And they were you know, talk about things. They were just basically one giant advertisement. So it was basically a shoebox size thing. And based on, um, you know, in the, in the binary world of gender back in the day, men got a box, women got a box. And one of the things we heard from folks was for men, especially, um, when you get them to start doing something the fall of their first year in college, they will continue to do it for the rest of their life. And if that is buy a certain brand of deodorant or uh, a certain brand of shaving cream, that will be what they do forever. And, um, you know, I think any kind of good behavior that you provide people in that fall of their freshman year, when you think about, uh, you know, student development theory and you're thinking about what's happening, teaching people how to vote, teaching people how to make sure you have an annual exam of whatever kinds you need uh, at the doctor's office. Whenever you do things in that fall of your first year of college, it, it literally has legs that take you for the rest of your life. And so your efforts here make a lot of sense. I also love the idea of what you put out there in terms of what those campuses like Northwestern, where you have students who are having those face-to-face -face communications. That is, as we know, those are those quote unquote soft skills, I hate that term, but those quote unquote soft skills that will take those students beyond their time at the institution, um, whether they want to be in political organizing or not, these are great skills for them to have. And, and in this world where we are so divided, having those skills to be able to talk to people about something as important and potentially divisive as voting and who you choose to vote for um, is a really a skill that students, uh, you know, I, I want to give big thumbs up to the campuses that are doing that kind of thing um, because it, it really is taking it to another level. Um, and so I think those, those examples are super, uh, super important. Mike, any thoughts on, on what Stephanie just laid out there and any other campuses you think that deserve a little uh, uh, notification, so to speak? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I will say is I think like this question is exactly why we started the voter-friendly campus program. And one of the things we really, I think, take to heart with our model and the work we do jointly with All In is like getting campuses to write a campus plan that is on paper so that lots of folks can see it and know what's in there and it can be shared and reviewed and evaluated is like a key function. And we actually work together jointly to review those plans for campuses that submit them to both our programs and give them feedback um, kind of as we run those cycles. So you know, and at the end of each cohort, for us at least, we read every campus plan and a report that the campus submits after the election that says like what worked, like because like knowing what's in your plan is one thing, and then knowing what actually happened and what you did is another. <laughs> that was a great idea. Did not work in practice. <laughs> yeah. So we write like a VFC report after each cohort, and we run it kind of like on a two-year cycle. So there's a 16 and 18 and a 2020 report at this point, and those are just totally full of us saying, here are the most common challenges we saw, but also here's some really innovative solutions from a lot of different campuses and a lot of campus examples in there. I'm always hesitant to call it individual ones, though, because for me, it's like, you know, Miami-Dade College in Florida has a different set of election laws, and they're like a massive multi-campus community college that serves a certain student population. And what works for them and what they need is probably different than like UT Austin and like dealing with election laws in Texas where like you have to be a, a trained volunteer deputy registrar to even assist someone with voter registration. So like the people power it takes to do that on such a massive campus is just such a different problem for them to solve than like maybe some folks who are up in a state that might have same day registration and how they structure their program and what that looks like for maybe some of our Midwest friends where that's more common. So really trying to think through like, how do we find as many of those great examples and collect them so that when we find an institution type with a student population type and a certain set of election laws that we've got a lot of good ideas for them to really help them navigate that. Um, and then kind of across our programs, we've built these networks and collected these examples and tried to connect the right people to the right ideas to kind of fit what they need. And where can people find that information, Mike, if they're interested in seeing what good good practices are out there? Um, yeah, we have a, a ton of stuff up. It's just voterfriendlycampus.org. Um, and there's a resource page and it's got like monthly webinars we've done for the last couple of years, as well as sample campus plans and reports and other um, things, as well as these kind of collective reports we do after each cycle of the program. And I know the all in folks have a, an amazing resource page as well that also has a ton of stuff. We work collectively with them, even on something we call like the strengthening American democracy template, which is like a, an outline guide with a lot of like questions of like, here's what we think a really comprehensive civic engagement plan would include. And here are a lot of questions to answer to do that. And we work, um, for like, I think it's on its third iteration now with them and several other groups in the space and with campus partners to continue to iterate and update those things. And and so Stephanie, uh, do a tease for your, your website as well. And then at the end of the show, I will make sure that both of you provide that information again, but Steve, Stephanie, go ahead. Oh, of course. So for our resources, it's for campuses to go to allinchallenge.org backslash resources. And then you'll see the action planning guide that Mike had referenced, a bunch of campus examples of action plans. So you can see documentation of how they're doing the work. And then we do an analysis um, every time we have an action plan submission deadline. So there's the second iteration of the 2022 analysis currently available. And then we'll do a follow-up in spring of 2023 with what we've learned from 2022. Um, not as in-depth as the voter-friendly campus end-of-year reports, but instead a like overall analysis of where do we see engagement with campuses regarding their action planning practices. That's great. And to Mike's point, um, higher education in this country is extraordinarily diverse in terms of the institution type sizes, 
locations, uh, urban, rural, uh, size, etc., private, public, there are a lot of limitations and a lot of opportunities when we're looking at these institutions. Um, I always coach people to look at the spirit behind something. It doesn't always have to be the letter of what something is laid out there. If you say, well, hold on a second, if this giant community college system can make this work, how can we make it work on our little tiny campus? There are lots of things we can learn from one another, which is super important. Um, I want to welcome everybody. You are here with Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution in professional development in higher education. My name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am your host. Um, we are here every week here on the Fireside uh, app. Uh, we uh, broadcast, broadcast excuse me, on Tuesdays. And today we are here with Mike Burns and Stephanie King uh, talking about midterm elections and campus voting and uh, really talking about voting in general. We have been very clear that voting happens all the time. Um, and we want to make sure people are making uh, voting a sustainable an important effort in their civic engagement on their college campuses. Next week, we are going to be uh, back with uh, the October edition of the Think Tank. Uh, we will have several folks come back on the show from our Think Tank crew, and we also have uh, a, a substitute, a tap-in from uh, Dr. Rich DiCapua from Tufts University, who has a strong background in campus finance. And we were going to be talking a bit that week about this new vogue uh, in uh, the tuition reset. Um, we are hearing out of Vermont and Massachusetts and New Hampshire of several campuses and several campus systems are coming down with a tuition reset. And what is this actually doing for higher ed? Uh, we know that uh, right now today in the Chronicle, there was an article about how it, uh, the opinion of higher education is okay. People think that there is value in higher ed. It's the price tag that people are the most worried about, and I don't blame them. So we're going to talk about tuition reset as well as some other current issues uh, as we do each month with our folks from the think tank. Um, if you have any questions, we have a nice audience today. If you have any questions as we roll out for the last few minutes of the show, please request to come on up on stage and ask Mike and Stephanie your question. Um, you know, I gave you guys in advance some some things that I was thinking about. And when I was looking at this in 2021, there was a edition of the Washington and Lee Law Review. And I am no legal scholar, but I think one of the things that was in here that was I thought was really interesting. Uh, they analyzed three legislative solutions related to the 26th Amendment. One of them was automatic voter registration at colleges and universities. And that, Stephanie, gets to some of the best practices that you laid out there is that people actually build this in in some way uh, on their campus in a systemic way, in an existing way. I'm always a big fan of campuses that say, we're already having students do this, so let's make this part of the process. Um, and so it, in it, it, especially when you can kind of fold it in and make it look super intentional. Um, and so that idea of having those, those examples that you've brought up, whether it be, I love the idea of you getting it when you uh, get, go get your parking permit, like every student is like waiting for that parking permit. So you got to make them do that. Um, I noticed that none of it is about signing up for your meal plan. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> there's that idea of having that opportunity to have it super intentional. Um, polling place requirements at colleges and universities. Mike or Stephanie, are you seeing that happening? Um, is there is this where sometimes the local uh, uh, voter folks, the state, the whoever's running voting kind of runs like, like, no, we don't we want them to vote, but we're not going to make it that easy. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on that? 
Oh, man, I know we're short on time. I don't want to get you in trouble. Okay. Yeah, I guess I will just say, I think one for me, I think AVR is actually a bit of a a mixed bag for colleges and universities because a lot of what you're doing is shifting from like an opt-in to an opt-out model. But as we were talking about before, I think students have a real getting the address for registration right at the time that it's being handled by the campus and shared with election officials is actually really tricky. And I think a better model and something we've advocated for is actually, you know, we have the National Voter Registration Act. And that's like the way that we have DMVs and how they're required to offer you the option to register and vote when providing those other services. There's structures in there for other agencies basically to be designated as voter registration agencies. So I think one of the things that we've advocated for a lot is that instead of going to an AVR model, which I think would be really difficult for a lot of campuses to implement around this timing of what address do you have when, is to do something more proactive, like designating them as voter registration agencies under the NVRA and kind of take that fully existing and well-developed like legal structure and processes where you're actually trying to have a conversation and offer registration opportunities to students at a specific point and then facilitate that with them and even you know transmit the voter registration form if it's completed on their behalf, we think is a probably a better solution. But um, you know, and there's some great stuff. Actually, Senator Warrens and Representative Williams out of Georgia have a youth voting rights um, bill right now that has um, that has almost all these things. So it has a, a statutory framework for 26 amendment complaints. It has on-campus polling places, but it also has this designation under the NVRA as voter registration agencies, as well as like national pre-registration starting at 16 and 17, which currently like less than half the states have, and that's across 16 and 17. And we know that's another key way to catch students even before they leave high school and kind of get dispersed either to higher ed or to the workforce, um, to have them be on the rolls and start that process even earlier. Um, So I would say that that's really great focusing in on the on-campus stuff before, I'm sure Stephanie has a lot to share on this too, but we know, we did some work. We do a project with MTV um, in 2020 for the first year, and now we're doing another iteration of it this year, and it's called like Voting Early is Easier this time around. But we're actually working with about 40 campuses to try and advocate to get on-campus voting sites because we know from some research that some students out of Duke did that about 74% of campuses did not have any in-person voting options in 2020. And that number goes up to about 90% when you start to look at early voting, which I think is a lot better for a campus community because usually the way early voting is structured in most states, it's serving like an entire jurisdiction so the whole county can early vote. Whereas when you're getting to like ballot drop boxes, it's less hands-on or even in-person election day, you're only serving like one or two precincts a lot of times with that. And that's a smaller number of voters for what is usually a very large kind of student population and as well as the staff and everyone else that's on campus um, throughout the day. Um, So really pushing on that. And it is, it is, very difficult. You know, we saw in some survey responses from students that we just did in a national poll, the top choice that they said to to increase access to voting would be to have these on-campus voting sites. And we know a ton of places do not have them already. So I think that's a huge one. It's just like the visibility that it creates in addition to the access it creates and the ability to then program around it when it's on campus makes a huge difference. Stephanie, thoughts on on that? I mean, I would echo Mike's sentiments in the options that are available. All in is also a sign on for um, Senator Warren's proposed legislation to help students vote act. And I think also coming off of a census year and knowing that precinct lines have changed in the last year, that it's a little bit more complicated for some to remember where their 
voting locations are. So for campuses to be a stakeholder in providing students with accessible points for engaging in the electoral process is incredibly important. And I think it also leans into the spaces of, for some campuses that are encouraging things like democracy day. So having a day off from tests or labs on that day to provide space for students to participate in the electoral process might be a different direction to take. Um, and also a way just to support, again, what is the infrastructure and institutionalization of the work and not just a like, we were super excited to host a polling location in 2018 and 2020, but then it wasn't that exciting for us in 2022. So how do we combat that and make sure it's a part of the, the community at large in a way, instead of passing mandates and assuming that campuses are monolithic depending upon their campus type, which they absolutely are not. Um, the campus populations really help to dictate what is most necessary and important for them. And so us leaning into that is incredibly important before we make mandates to institutions um, for changing their structures on campus example, AVR, or adding a polling location if it's not meeting a student need necessarily. I wanted to uh, take us out with one last question, and I alluded to this earlier about uh, voter registration on the campus and students. Uh, it's not just every four years. It's not every two years. It's every year. And how to engage them in local elections and how that may create some tensions with some of the locals, okay? And I'm wondering um, your thoughts on that, uh, you know, for both of you, but Mike, because you've got people actually physically in these states and in these localities, um, and you talked earlier about, you know, how they engage with the campuses, is there also a piece of that with vote, with dealing with local voting elect, uh, voting uh, and elector, uh, election officials? What does that look like in terms of kind of building that sense of a partnership and saying like, this is important and, and you don't get into, you know, working in voting if you don't believe in the process, right? Um, so what happens there in terms of building that relationship? Yeah, I think that's a key piece because, you know, they have a lot of authority even within the law to structure kind of, you know, they have educational resources, staff resources, the ability to do allocation around the voting equipment and precincts and processes. So we really try yeah, and work with campuses to build those relationships because, yeah, I think if you're a local election official, like your job is to serve the needs of voters in your community. And we know that students are a, a large and specific population that have slightly different needs a lot of times about how that should look for them. So I think we're always trying to share that message with election officials and like, you know, being from a voting rights organization, I want it to be a friendly relationship. And there are a lot of folks that are doing really great work and trying to build those relationships and understand like, what's the address on campus so that I get this right? Or like, can I get a list of students that has certain information so that we can check them off when they come in without having to show all the types of IDs they might always have to have so that we have that type of information or we have their addresses on file for same day registration because the campus gave it to us before the election. All that's great. But if you're not going to do that, then like definitely call us and we will send them angry letters that say that's not the law or we don't think you're doing this right and you're not serving the needs of voters. Um, you know, I think for us, it's kind of that duality. Like we want it to be a good relationship. We want to build it over time. And I don't want to start off angry knowing that like the campus will still be there next year and the election office will still be there next year. But like knowing the the partisanness that gets infected in some of this, even down to the local level, and even those unfortunately into election offices sometimes, or just people's antiquated thinking of that, like students aren't permanent residents and they don't need to be treated the same. Like, unfortunately, we still encounter that a lot of places. And when we do, then we need to take a different tact and we're willing to work with campuses to, to help do that um, if that's what it takes to do um, in some of those instances. 
it is all about partnership building. It's all about relationships and we got to we got to we got to bring people together. Right. Um, and so uh, I want to take us out on a couple things. I'm going to ask both Mike and Stephanie to share their contact information or their favorite website for people to engage with their organizations. You're also both with not for profits. So if people are so inclined to donate. Uh, please let them know how to do that. Um, and I want to just remind folks that next week we are having, we're back with our October think tank episode. Um, and if you are listening to this, uh, either, um, live or on replay, uh, please engage with me. My, uh, contact information is available in the replay information and right now scrolling across the center of your screen. So you can actually find that and engage with me on all my social media platforms. I get great ideas for upcoming shows and guests from my from my listeners. So please continue to do that. Um, love to have uh, your thoughts and your preferences moving forward. And so uh, we're going to go with uh, Stephanie and then Mike, and then I'm going to sign us out. So Stephanie, tell folks how to how to find you and how to engage with with your organization. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, folks can find us online at allinchallenge.org. They can also use our one-stop voter hub at allintovote.org. And then for any social engagement, it is all in to vote on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, and if you reach out to any of those platforms, we'll direct you to the appropriate staff person. Uh, if you're looking for me directly, it's Stephanie at Civic Nation. Pretty simple, but happy to connect with folks as you're listening in. Thank, thank you, Stephanie. And Mike? Yeah, I just thank you so much for having us here today. And it was a pleasure to work with Stephanie. I just wanted to make sure in closing out that I said, like, we frequently say that we are only being successful in work if our campus partners are being successful. So we're always trying to put them front and center. And I hope that came through in our conversation today. And I just want to close with saying that, like, if you reach out to Stephanie, feel free to ask her about stuff and she can let me know or reach out to me and I will loop Stephanie in if they've got a better program or a better resource. Um, kind of across this work for us. It's about making sure that folks on campus have what they need and they're successful. So just wanted to make sure I shared that before we wrapped up and folks can find us at campusvoteproject.org and then also voterfriendlycampus.org um, and all our, all our emails and social contacts are on both of those websites. You guys are awesome. I really enjoyed having you here today and you're always welcome back if you have anything you want to plug or speak about. Um, and so I uh, would love to have all of you back next week for our show. And uh, you have been listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded weekly on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside. Twitter and LinkedIn. Links to subscribe are available through my link tree, which is right now scrolling across the center of your screen and in the show notes. Now, go on out there and learn something, everybody. We'll see you next week.